You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. If there is a thinker who increasingly defines the mainstream thought of the 21st century, it is the 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. In an age when nobody believes in anything except their own authenticity, Nietzsche is the philosopher who challenges us all to live authentically in the here and now. C. Ivan Spencer writes in his recent book, Tweetable Nietzsche, that when we are still living, then you must value this life for exactly what it is, not for what it might lead to. If you value this life in itself, not an afterlife, then you will be authentically joyful. If you want to relive any joyful moment, you must embrace every moment. You will courageously pursue an earthly life fully tilted towards passionate living. When asked if you would do it all over again, you will emphatically proclaim yes eternally. My name is Coyle Neal, and I am an assistant professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Joining me today to talk about Nietzsche is C. Ivan Spencer. Dr. Spencer is professor of history and philosophy at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, where he lives with his wife and attends church at Bayleaf Baptist Church. He has his B.A. and M.A. from Criswell College and his Ph.D. in the humanities from the University of Texas in Arlington. Dr. Spencer teaches the history of ideas curriculum at Southeastern Seminary. Dr. Spencer, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Coyle. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Uh, now, now, I have uh, two introductory questions uh, based on just the title of Tweetable uh, Nietzsche. Uh, first, I, I always heard growing up that Nietzsche was the guy that nice young Christians go to college and read and become atheists. Uh, are you saying he's really not so bad? Um, well, not exactly. But it is true that, I mean, he has misled uh, or led astray quite a few people. And so, no, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say my overall intention is to say that he's not so bad, but more to show how contemporary culture that we're in uh, is uh, derivative in part from his thought. And, and I think that's uh, that's one of the interesting uh, uh, interesting sort of streams of thought in your book as you walk through the, the various ideas uh, that Nietzsche, Nietzsche gives us. Uh, I don't think that most people in our contemporary culture are out there reading Nietzsche. Uh, and yet he is, he is clearly tapping into what's going on in, in the modern world. Uh, how, how do you think that's happened? Well, there have been so many people influenced by him, very influential people, cultural elites uh, uh, in the educational world, uh, intellectual um, elites and others who have incorporated his thought and then it has found its way into our culture through their influence for example though now postmodernism is uh, definitely a waning movement the whole postmodern movement for some 30 or 40 years had a heavy heavy sway on universities and various departments in the university some more than others but uh, Nietzsche was the precursor to postmodern culture, and he was almost kind of like their prophet in the way he emphasized that there are no facts, there, there is no truth, there's only interpretation, and there's only the spin that uh, powerful people put on uh, things. So anyway, the postmodern movement took a lot of Nietzschean concepts and ideas and repackaged them, if you will. They filtered into all types of disciplines within the university, 
And that has influenced the past 30 or 40 years of our culture. And so you're right. Not The average Joe is not out there reading Nietzsche much. Uh, sure, a few people that might get introduced to him in college. But it's like Marx. Very few people read Marx. But billions of people's lives have been deeply impacted by his thought. And it's the same with Nietzsche. Right, sort of a trickle-down academics working its way through the uh, through the population. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess uh, another question, uh, just just on the title, sort of my my immediate reaction uh, to, to the title "Tweetable Nietzsche" was, uh, "Gosh, this this guy is cheating because Nietzsche is already written in tweets." Uh, so, uh, can can you explain and, and defend your your method in the book? Uh, now, I should say, having read the book, uh, I, it's it's a great book, and I encourage all of our listeners to, to go out and read it. But uh, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing uh, by by making Nietzsche even more tweetable? Thank you. Uh, yes, the, the the thought occurred to me um, some years back. I, I mentioned it a little bit in the book, how I came up with the concept. But um, I, I've read, I've been reading Nietzsche for the past twenty five years uh, or more, and you know he has all these uh, little pithy sayings. He's a um, uh, a philosopher who writes in little maxims and quips and quotes and stuff. And a lot of what he says just has this short um, kind of brevity to it that makes it bite all the more. And one day it occurred to me, it's like, if he was alive today, he would be tweeting this. These are tweets. <laughs> and, sure. And I said, uh, tweetable Nietzsche. And uh, so the idea kind of stuck in my mind that... Uh, there are other people that would fit this as well, like Blaise Pascal. Uh, but uh, the idea kind of stuck in my mind that uh, you know that'd be a great way to uh, to write a, a book, take some of his tweetable ideas as a way to illustrate his entire worldview, naturalism, which has you know, deep influence upon our world today. So it just seemed like you know we're in an age where the soundbite, the tweet has become uh, more and more influential. It's about all you get to say sometimes is a tweet. And um, so that's where the idea was born. And uh, can you maybe uh, talk a little bit about Nietzsche's method? Uh, because he, he does write in either aphorisms or, or at least fairly short segments. Uh, and it's something that, I mean, my students sort of love and hate at the same time, right? They right. they they like it because it's very easy to read these these short paragraphs that are often some form of of extreme statement. But when you're trying to figure out what his overall project is, that that can be more of a challenge. So, can you talk maybe a little bit about how how we're supposed to be tying those aphorisms together, if we are at all? Yeah, trying to systematize Nietzsche is is difficult because. He didn't want to be systematized, and he intentionally avoided it. He did not like grand systems of thought, say like Kant or Hegel or Plato, you know, these grand speculative philosophers who come up with a kind of all-encompassing type of system or what postmoderns call a meta-narrative. And he did not uh, want to be boxed in by a system. He, he felt that once you systematize things, uh, and you, you begin to become dishonest because now you force things to fit your system. And 
So he, he wanted to avoid that, and I think he probably saw that more in Hegel and in Kant than anyone. Of course, two sure. recent, very influential philosophers who had written in his own mother tongue, German, right. who, who were deeply systematic, or, I mean, you know, vastly so. Uh, and so, uh, I kind of like Kierkegaard, who is also against systems, and... Uh, and, and other thinkers, they, they have flashes of insight into something. And so they dash off those insights, and then at some point they try to collect them and put them into some type of a work. And so you're right, he does come across with a lot of aphorisms and short uh, paragraphs. You know, sometimes you might see two or three pages where he will delve into some topic. Uh, that he has uh, explored. But he's, uh, by and large, very difficult to systematize. And so in this book, what I've attempted to do is not not artificially impose any system on him, but just kind of like, okay, what does this guy look at uh, when he's looking at knowledge? What does he think about knowledge, or what we might traditionally call epistemology? Uh, and what does he think about morality? I'd say half of everything that he wrote concerns morality, ethics, uh, and so forth. And so uh, he has an awful lot to say about that. So I, I try to have a chapter on these different main traditional type of concerns uh, like epistemology or or morality or uh, human nature or things, things like that. Now, now uh, one of the... Uh one of the challenges that we often hear, maybe, I mean, maybe from, from some of the, the more informed Christian readers, but uh, at least from uh, uh, the, the academic critics of Nietzsche, is that he is an inspiration for national socialism. Uh, can, you, can you speak to that at all? Yes. Well, it's like I said in the book, that uh, Nazis love Nietzsche, but Nietzsche didn't love Nazis. Okay? <laughs> um, they, primarily through the work of his sister, who was a, a Nazi, uh, and her husband was a Nazi, they sought to get his ideas uh, injected into and accepted by that national socialistic program there in Germany. And, uh, and they were largely successful. Uh, Nietzsche became almost mythical in his influence in Germany in the early part of the 20th century and had a kind of, I mean, beyond legend, he almost became like a myth and inspired many of the German youth uh, during those, uh, those dark decades. But one, the uh, last 10 years of his life he, life, he was oblivious to what was going on because he was in a state of insanity. And then after he dies in 1900, you know, the war doesn't start for another 14 years, the First World War. Um, during that run-up to that, to that war, Nietzsche's status, like I said, became mythical. And a lot of what he wrote almost became like a, a kind of uh, prophetic voice for this rising... Uh, nationalism and that pretty much uh, went on all the way up until World War II Uh, in fact his sister Elizabeth uh, not only promoting his ideas developed uh, at least a 
an association with uh, Hitler and invited Hitler to come to the Nietzschean archives that she had set up. And Hitler would occasionally visit the archives, um, I don't know whether to read or to vi- you know to get some of Nietzsche's ideas or, or whatever, but uh, it was kind of a shrine that was set up. And there is a famous picture of Hitler doing homage or showing homage to Nietzsche's bust there uh, that was set up in the shrine. So the Nazis, of course, were looking for all kinds of ways all to, to propagandize and were not afraid to use almost anything uh, to, to promote their political agenda. And many of Nietzsche's ideas did lend themselves to the kind of ideas that they were going to promote, like a super race and uh, the, uh, the a superman, the over, overman. Right. And so whether Hitler saw himself as a Nietzschean ubermensch, superman or not, is uh, you know we don't know, but you know it's plausible to think that since he's trying to set up a super race, or he was trying to set up a super race um, to uh, to dominate the world, and, and so Nietzsche's ideas were kind of uh, dangerous, and so though I don't think he would have directly approved, nevertheless ideas have consequences. And those ideas were easily co-opted and used for that agenda. Right, and and it may be uh, at least sort of my my impression of of Nietzsche is that there are passages you can read in his works that that sound an awful lot like National Socialism uh, in Germany in the 1930s, but they're they're almost always cautionary passages. Right, this is this is what will happen if you take this idea of the overman and run the wrong direction with it. Uh, so it's it's sort of the equivalent of reading you know Plato's Republic and reading about the tyrant and thinking man Plato is responsible for all awful political leaders, <laughs> like you, yes. you just you completely missed the point right. Yeah. Um, uh, so if if uh, speaking sort of the of this this meta narrative that Nietzsche would be against, uh, uh, but that if it exists it is not national socialism, uh, the the three sort of common things that we hear. Uh, are going to be the uh, uh, the overman, of course, uh, the the will to power, uh, and eternal return, with uh, maybe some nod to, to beyond good and evil as as a, as a Nietzschean phrase as well. Um, are these the, the well? First, we should ask what are these things, and are they maybe the meta narrative, or, or even then, are we systematizing too much for Nietzsche? Well, I mean, I think it's safe to say you know he's a full blown atheistic naturalist but he doesn't sound exactly like what we we hear today from philosophical naturalists okay but he is taking his idea that there is no god uh, to its conclusions um, natural conclusions and he sees that this does leave him in a kind of a state of, of nihilism and but nihilism is very hard to live out. It's very difficult to sustain nihilism, and he doesn't like nihilism. He, he really doesn't, even though he's usually considered to be a nihilist. And so he wants to get beyond that. And so this is the existentialist phase, or the kind of the beginning of the existentialist uh, atheistic thought, or, or atheistic existentialism, I should say. 
uh, an attempt to climb out of that dark hole of nihilism and create meaning and significance by uh, sheer tenacity of will. And so I don't think it's wrong to say that you know he has a worldview and the worldview is somewhat of a system. He just he he doesn't rigorously build system you know systems the way other people in his culture had at the time. I mean, Germans loved to build systems of thought. Sure. And um, so he was uh, you know, kind of railing against that. But um, he, yes, those concepts that you mentioned, will to power, the ubermensch, the overman, the eternal return, and then uh, his ideas on morality, which he called the transvaluation of values, Right is is also uh, those those things are you know his big uh, big themes if you will that uh, tie together his thought and and I do believe at the end you know that he is coherent not rigorously so but um, if he had a flash of insight that went off in a different direction sometimes he would explore that and towards the end of the book I try to do a little bit of analysis. And show how some of his ideas, it's just very difficult to see how they hang together, how they're coherent. Um, but uh, but anyway, we can explore each of those uh, ideas, uh, if you would like. The, the will to power is, of course, one of his original ideas, just like the Ubermensch is one of his original ideas, and the eternal return. And they all kind of fit together, and so they, they are coherent, at least. But he's saying that uh, will to power, really, once we, get, once we have dissolved morality, there is, there is no morality, there is no good and evil anymore. So he wrote that word, beyond good and evil, to explain how we are essentially beyond the concepts of good and evil now. Why? Well, because God is dead. So if God is dead... Uh, that you really have to start there. Um, so, what he means by saying God is dead is really that, as a cultural concept that ties your culture together, God is no longer uh, functioning that way. The way I illustrate it to my students is that I ask them, "Do they know anyone that believes in Zeus?" And they say, "No." I said, "Have you have you ever prayed to Zeus?" They say, "No." I said, "Do you believe Zeus ever existed?" They say, "No." And I said, yeah, you're right, Zeus is dead. No one believes he ever existed. No one prays to him anymore. He's no longer the hub of a civilization. Right, so it's not that there was a god and now there's not. It's that our belief about him has, has moved on. Exactly. And now, see, he lives in a post-Darwin age. I mean, he was uh, a young man when Darwin's ideas first came out. Uh, he's been exposed to materialistic ideas in German universities uh, as a young man, and he's accepted that, and he believes that the whole concept of God is now dead, much the way the idea of Zeus is dead. God never existed, but God is no longer uh, the source of values. Because he's no longer the source of values, whether for truth or for morality, um, Everything that went with God has got to go too. At one point, he says, "You ripped the rug right out from underneath the feet of of all the values that were tied to God." And so, 
now that we're in a state where there is no ultimate good, there is no transcendent source for good and evil, one really has to engage in the project of transvaluation of values. Create your own values. And this is where will to power comes into play. Um, So will to power comes down to who has the tenacity, who has the sheer tenacity of will uh, to impose values on others. And he hoped that someone would come along who was the ubermensch, the superman, who would be able to do this. And this person has the has the uh, fortitude to impose his own values, create his own values, and impose them on everyone. And so, if God is gone, it's okay for the strong to pray on the weak. All those Christian values about protecting the weak and about equality and so forth get uh, washed away by the stark reality that is that we're in a kind of a survival of the fittest type of situation where the fittest need to prey on the weak and to become strong. It's always interesting to read those passages with students. Uh, you rarely have students, much much like the uh, the Philosopher King passage in, in Plato, you uh, you always have the students who think, oh yes, if, if this is true, then I am the Ubermensch, or I am the Philosopher King. Uh, you, you never have students, or, or I suppose faculty, who think, you know, I, I am one of the herd. Uh, the, the Philosopher Kings and the Ubermensch are, are few and far between, and just statistically the odds are I'm not one of them. Uh, there's there's something uh, something I think appealing about that, uh, as long as you're thinking of yourself as the the, the hunter or the predator or the the overman or, or ubermensher or what have you. Yeah, it sounds good until somebody else has more power than you, and right? Subjugates you. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think you're right. Uh, no one wants to think of themselves as being anything other than the one who triumphs and comes over you know overcomes. Uh, everything so those concepts will to power uh, now the eternal return is one that is it, it really can make your mind zone out I mean it's uh, the idea the way he presents it is that eternity is in a giant feedback loop the whole world the whole cosmos will come back around to the very state it is right now and so he describes it as a, an hourglass that will be turned over, over and over and over and over again. And every time, your life, like a grain of sand in that hourglass, will pass through. And so your life will recur over and over again. And so perhaps it is a, a kind of belief or mechanism to live authentically, to, to try to reflect on your life and about how you would want to live and whether you'd want to live this again. Um, but he also possibly meant it in a, in a you know, ontological way that this really is the way things are and you really are going to live over and over again. Right. And so <laughs> love your fate, he said, amor fati means to love your fate. And that fate is that you must live your life the way it is programmed to live by the laws of nature and you can't really escape that that's one of the things I bring out towards the end of the book it's difficult to reconcile this 
with his teachings on on uh, free will that if I must do what I must do then how is this going to help me get through my decisions now about how I would want to live after all for all I know I've lived many thousands of lives just exactly like this one down to every minute detail and if that's the case then this is just a repeat of all those in the past perhaps it's the first in the sequence perhaps it's the last in the sequence we don't know but the the idea seems very uh, difficult to to put into any type of practical application right so what what could be either a statement about you know natural physics natural law particle physics what have you or a psychological help to enable us to live in the world uh, sort of like ancient epicureanism ends up being kind of practically worthless for the intended goal yeah very much so yeah, uh, and uh, could you talk maybe a little bit about so uh, the the idea of the the will to power uh, and and the eternal return and and being beyond good and evil and transvaluation of values and so on. Uh, all of that, when you're reading Nietzsche, sounds very sort of individual against the community or or against society. But he also there there is a social side to that thought. So, what does it mean to to think about the will to power in terms of the community? Uh, if, I don't know if I'm asking that clearly or not. Uh, I guess what is what is Nietzsche's political philosophy is the, the broader question there. Uh, but with some of these specific ideas, you know, where where does the will to power fit in uh, in a community that is in the process of abandoning God, as you know, the idea of God dies? Yeah. Okay. Well, one of the things that he attacks is, like you mentioned before earlier, the herd morality or the slave morality, and how traditional ethics in the or traditional morality in the west judeo-christian morality uh, has been a slave ethic or a herd morality now what he means by that is that we have developed a a kind of morality where the weak are uh, they pool together they pull together uh, to control the stronger So it traces this back to Israel, for example, uh, when they were when the Hebrews were slaves and so forth. They're in a state of subjugation, and they have resentment. Uh, and resentment is this idea that you are being harshly treated as a slave, and yet you're completely powerless to do anything about it or to you know to to complain or, or see any improvement in your conditions and so forth so the slaves eventually came up with a way to triumph over their masters so this is slave morality versus master morality and the way the slaves do this is to basically put a guilt trip uh, on the the masters and to do this, uh, this is Nietzschean psychology. He, th- he saw himself as a psychologist, and he was trying to get into the psychology of traditional morality. And so what he thought was going on was that that the, the slaves, the herds, found a way to get under the skin, if you will, of the masters and to make them feel guilty. Now, to do that, uh, to have guilt, you must have responsibility. And to have responsibility, you must have free will. So Nietzsche rejects free will, but he says that the, sl- uh, the, the whole idea of free will was just invented 
to make people responsible so that you could then make them feel guilty for their harsh treatment of slaves. And to do this, you need God in the picture. Uh, you need uh, you need to have a divine being who sides with the slaves, uh, and therefore you can make the the uh, the masters feel guilty for their harsh treatment and put a guilt trip on them. So, of course, Nietzsche doesn't believe that God exists. He doesn't believe in free will. Therefore, he doesn't really believe in moral responsibility. And therefore, there's no way to put guilt on anyone for what they do. Therefore, anyone who today, like the Ubermensch, the, the Superman, who could have the, the fortitude of will to ignore all this and impose his will on everyone else, could raise the collective humanity up to a new level uh, on a Darwinian scale, even though he doesn't mention Darwin a whole lot here, but he could could raise us up to a new evolutionary plane or a new evolutionary scale by leaving humanity behind. But to do that, you have to kill off traditional morality. So traditional morality is what's holding us back on the Nietzschean analysis of things. Right, that, that same uh, same step that we took from being beasts into being human now has to be taken again. And just as we, we set aside the, the beastly aspects, the beastly laws to become human, now we have to set aside the human laws that we've made up to in order to become, you know, uh, uh, above human, uh, uber, ubermensch. Right, and those human laws are what he would call herd laws. Right. It's just where the weak get together to make rules to control the stronger. Uh, you know, it's not unlike, you know, you've mentioned Plato in the Republic several times, like Thrasymachus and Polemarchus back in the Republic, making similar type arguments. Sure. That, you know, that, uh, you know, what people call justice is just the weak people getting together and banding together to harness and control the stronger people. Yeah, and I... Uh... Uh, I, I want to keep talking about that, but since since you had mentioned the Jews, I, I think uh, this this is maybe a good point too. Just briefly, I don't remember if you dealt with this in, in the book or not, but Nietzsche is a, a of two minds about the Jews, right? I mean, you, you you talked about how he he sees them as the inventors of slave morality, uh, and and uh, of course it's the Christians who who pick this idea up and really perfect it. Yeah. Uh, but they're they're the the origin point. But he also has a. He has a good deal of respect for the Jews uh, in in the way they have managed to sort of stick it out culturally. Yeah. Uh, so they they are sort of at the t- same time inventors of slave morality uh, and overcomers, right? They've they've resisted all of the cultural pressures uh, to conform and to convert and to to abandon their their traditions uh, throughout you know two millennia in Europe. They're they're still living the way they used to. I think he he comes. It's not even grudging respect. It's it's sort of openly stated respect when he when he talks about. Uh, I think it's in the gay science, right? When he when he talks about peoples and cultures, uh, they are. I think they're the only people he talk. He says unreservedly good things about. Yes. Yeah, he's not anti-Semitic. Right. Uh, even though, like you said, he criticizes them for you know, giving rise to the the herd morality. But you're right, he's not anti-Semitic, uh, like much of his culture was. I mean, you know, during the days that Nietzsche's alive, I mean, that late part of the 19th century is where anti-Semitism is really a, 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 a ferment 
that is about to combust into open, you know, open hostility towards the Jews. Right. So certainly starting with the the the, the rash of pogroms in, in Eastern Europe uh, by yes. the, the Russians. Um, and and I think uh, if I remember correctly, uh, that is one of the reasons he ultimately. Uh, Revokes his German citizenship, right? It's it's not the only the big one, of course, is the the nationalization of Germany. Uh, but one of the reasons he gives it up is is because of their their treatment of uh, of the Jews. Now I, I I might be misremembering that, but I I seem to remember that showing up somewhere. Yeah. Um. Uh, so on this uh, on this on this overcoming on this evolution, like like you said, this is a very Darwinian uh, a Darwinian view of of culture and society. Uh, I don't. I don't know enough about Darwin to uh, to be able to comment on whether or not Nietzsche is is accurate. But he certainly fits in with at least the the common perception of it. Uh, what uh, what should we think about that as Christians? Right. The the idea that uh, culture is evolving and we we need these these big evolutionary leaps, uh, and we need you know reformers to come along and and teach us a, a new way that breaks us apart from the old way. I mean, there, there sounds like there's something true to that, even if it's just based on how history has tended to work. Um, what do we think here? Well, I don't know that we all think the same, but but I think that really Christianity teaches something very similar. It's just that we go the opposite direction. You know, the, the Superman is the second Adam. It's uh, it's Jesus. And he's showing us a new way, and it kind of goes the opposite direction from what Nietzsche was pointing. Uh, in fact, much of his thus-spake Zarathustra, Zarathustra the preaching like a prophet, a lot of times it sounds like he's just point for point trying to say the opposite of what Christ said. So we do right. believe that humanity needs to step up, if you will, or come up to a new level of humanity. And we do see it as coming through a particular person who showed us a higher way. By, by rejecting cultural values, right? By, by, by rejecting sort of existing human law. Well, well, yeah, insofar as that human law doesn't, as long as it doesn't square up with or, or reflect, if you will, a divine law. But, right, right. But, but yes, I, I think that... Uh, that, that we, we too have, we follow one person, one man, uh, who is leading us to a higher form of humanity uh, that is beyond humanity, if you will. And that's what we hope and long for in the kingdom of God is a, a kind of uh, an elevated form of, of humanity that comes through you know, having the image of Christ within us. So... It's almost as if Nietzsche has written another gospel here, another way, but it's an anti-Christ, anti-Christian way. It's uh, it's it's the naturalistic uh, way to salvation through the Ubermensch, and so we can make ourselves into a better race. Uh, the weak need to die off, the the strong need to flourish, and. The, uh, you know, like any herd, it stays strong by the weak dying off and the strong then going on to to uh, to flourish and to to prosper and and uh, and breed. So, but uh, the Christian way 
clearly seems to be like a mirror opposite uh, of what uh, Nietzsche is saying. Yeah, and I, I appreciated how clearly you bring that out in the book. I mean, you could, like you said, you could take all of these these things that Nietzsche is saying and sub in different words, and it works exactly like the Christian life. So, you know, the, the flesh needs to die off, and we need to grow in holiness uh, through the Spirit. And, I mean, if you want to talk about that in, in sort of evolutionary terms, in terms of sanctification, uh, there there is, I don't know if I'd say useful language, because I think it can be very confusing if... Yeah. if you know, someone who is who is not in the the in speak is listening in, uh, but yeah, the the, the parallels are, are all certainly there. Maybe excluding the eternal return, uh, that that might be the one that as Christians we we sort of hold on and say, you know, our, our history has a beginning and an end, and it's not ongoing. But right, I mean, triumph of the will or, or uh, the will to power. Uh, you know, that, the, what what is that if not a parallel for the empowering of the Holy Spirit? Uh, uh, being beyond good and evil, you know, setting aside the, the things of the world and, and living according to divine law. I mean, like you said, we, we could just go through the list here. Right. Um, I think the eternal return, you mentioned that, it's with no eternity now within his worldview. I mean, not, not, no afterlife, let's just put it like that. And he mentions afterworlds, uh, that the, the longing that Christians have, the longing that the slave slaves and the the herds had for an afterworld was essentially you know this longing for a world that they couldn't have here so Nietzsche is saying well make that world here and now um, and do it in such a way that you could wish that it would recur eternally so um, but it is one of the it, it seems like his last futile grasp for some type of transcendence uh, even though he wants to turn his back completely on transcendence it's like this is one little piece of it that's still there I, you know he wants to recur eternally over and over and over again right so if it's if it's not an oxymoron to say it's it is a naturalistic transcendence yeah. he's he's trying to elevate the natural world to an eternal category right um, I think a uh, a question that uh, I love asking students because they're they're always sort of struggle with it appropriately. I think. Uh, do you think Nietzsche was was right in his descriptions of of sort of human reality? Uh, obviously, we're we're Christians and, and we we believe in in a deity and so on. But uh, uh, just as sort of an 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 exposition of the way the world appears to work. Uh, is, is Nietzsche on to something? Well, I, I wouldn't deny that there's some things in there. That, that he, he's a, a deep and incisive observer of human nature, human psychology. And if God does not exist, then Nietzsche is right on many, many things. Okay. But he does not really go into evaluating whether God exists or not. He just prophetically announces that God is dead. This is my starting point. Uh, we've killed God. God is dead. Um, and now that we know that God no longer exists, starting from that atheistic assumption, here's what follows. Okay. And that's where some of the contemporary atheists, like the you know the new atheist, the four horsemen, the, the new atheist uh, Dawkins, Dennett, uh, ha uh, Harris, and uh, uh, Hitchens. Uh, I think that's where some of them 
that they distance themselves from Nietzsche. You don't hear them often referring to Nietzsche or, or quoting him or anything. And it's because they want to believe, well, of course, that God is dead. There is no God. But they want to hold on to the values, the Christian values, that um, uh, that there is an objective right and wrong, that one can live a upright moral life and so forth as a thoroughgoing atheist. Uh, but but they, they kind of distance themselves from him because he takes atheism to its logical conclusions. And it's like, okay, look, you know, if we're going to be really atheist here, let's be honest, it takes us to nihilism. But that's very uncomfortable. You know, I, it's just really hard to camp out in that black hole, that abyss. So I'm going to climb out of here by creating making my own values. If there is no God, then I can create my own values by will to power. Uh, right. And so they uh, they don't go there nowadays. Uh, they don't paint that picture. They don't acknowledge that it, atheism, naturalism takes you to nihilism. What they want to say is you can be an atheist, a full-blown naturalist, and in good faith still maintain that there's objective morality. Well, and, and the uh, the new atheists uh, they they would argue that there is they can, they would argue for objective morality on the basis of reason. And I, Nietzsche, in some ways, is is an anti-rationalist. Uh, uh, I don't want to push that that phrase too hard, but you you talked earlier, and uh, you you end your book uh, by pointing out some of the inconsistencies in his thought. And I think that he uh, he would cheerfully agree with you, and he would say, "Yeah, that's that's just a reflection of what life is like. You know, life is not because there is no God. Uh, life is not dominated by reason and rationality." Yeah, uh, and and I. I think that's one of the places where the new atheists are going to want to push back because, like you said, they, they want to keep all of the implications of there being a rational universe, things like morality and natural law and so on. Uh, but they don't want there to be a source for that rationality. Right. Uh, no, that said, I've, I have not read my, much of the new atheists and uh, tend to prefer Nietzsche uh, to, to most of their writings anyway. Yeah. I think that's true. They, they do want to make religion their brand. And, uh, and and hold that they are rational, and you know anyone who believes in God is irrational. And and Nietzsche is not uh, not. You're, I think you're right. He's not excessively rationalistic, and um, much like Kierkegaard, or have, having a similarity there to Kierkegaard in that respect. And uh, that you know, if things lead to contradictions, then so be it. This is just the way. You know. This is part of the human situation, and but you're right. The new atheists want to have their cake and eat it too on this, right? So I, I, that's one of the things I try to bring out in the very last chapter on contemporary naturalism. Even though many of these contemporary arguments coming out of naturalism are not things that Nietzsche would have known, uh, you know, they're they're still within the naturalistic worldview like he is right so the last chapter is not explicitly about him it's more about contemporary naturalism and some insights there on that uh, now you've uh, you mentioned kierkegaard several times and I, I think that's that's uh, uh appropriate can you talk a little bit about the uh, the relationship between kierkegaard and nietzsche uh obviously not in any personal sen- personal sense but uh, yeah. uh the similarities differences be- between their their writings well, obviously, you know, Kierkegaard is a thoroughgoing Christian, 
and you know his views. I mean, first of all, I think Nietzsche was aware of Kierkegaard, but I don't know that he had ever ever actually read any uh, of Kierkegaard because uh, you know they were uh, you know contemporaries, and uh, at least for some period of time. And I couldn't say that the influence went the other way either. I don't think that Nietzsche had any impact on, on, on Kierkegaard. But they're both working against Enlightenment rationalism in some way. And so, of course, Kierkegaard famously uh, trying to attack and respond to Hegelian rationalism. So, but Kierkegaard still a thoroughgoing Christian some would say fideistic in his approach to to uh, the Christian faith. Uh, they're both existentialists, but they're, they're, the existentialist urge that they each have, I think, has a different source altogether. For Nietzsche, it's an attempt to escape nihilism, uh, a nihilism that he saw naturalism naturally that it, that it led to, whereas Kierkegaard. The existentialist uh, urge there, or leap, is one that must be made to have true faith and reliance upon God in the face of an absurd world. So, um, yeah, that, that would make an interesting comparative study, uh, similarities and differences between the two. But yeah, there, there's not much of an organic link between the two other than just you know some parallels in thought. Uh, I do know that uh, uh, Nietzsche uh, had had Kierkegaard recommended to him. Uh, his one of Kierkegaard's books had just been translated into German, and uh, Nietzsche had someone suggested to him, and he said he would he would look into it. Uh, and then he was struck with insanity. Uh, right. He broke down. Um, I, th- I think that was in a uh, the the new Backhouse biography that uh, right. that they did a profiles interview on. Um, uh, maybe maybe uh, uh, can you say a few words about what happens to Kierkegaard uh, with with the madness? Uh, what what are we to think about that? Is that is that God? Did I say Kierkegaard? What happens to Nietzsche? Uh, can you say a few words about what happens to Nietzsche uh, in terms of his madness? Is that God punishing him uh, for his yeah. atheism? Uh, how how are we supposed to to think through that as as Christians? Well, I, I wouldn't want to be presumptuous and say that God just reached down and struck him uh, with the madness, uh, but. That's also possible. Um, so, you know, he seemed to have struggled all through his life with a lot of illnesses, that, and that go way back to his youth. He had severe migraine attacks uh, that would last for days, and he would, uh, you know, live in isolation a lot. Uh, but he, it. it Someone has there. There's been analysis of this. Uh, you know that that he had some type of a, a problem with his eye that was pressing a nerve in his brain. Well, of course, one of the classic uh, explanations was that he had syphilis, uh, and because he seemed to have conditions that uh, um, were similar to that, and so. But that seems, uh, there's reasons to think that that's not plausible, that uh, because he had these symptoms going way back into his his uh, early youth. And and so, anyway, he struggles with this throughout his life, and obviously these severe bouts of pain 
and struggle are something that figure deeply into his, his philosophy in, in terms of you know his outlook on life and so forth. But uh, anyway, you know, 1889, he descends into a state of insanity. He saw a cart horse being whipped uh, in Turin and had a lot of compassion for the horse and went over to hug the horse uh, and collapsed in a state of insanity. And he might come in and out of states of, of, of sanity, but uh, eventually his friends, uh, you know, took measures to have him uh, uh, taken care of constantly. And eventually his sister takes him and watches over him for the last 11 years of his life. And he, in, in all accounts, it, it worsened until he died in 1900. But, you know, whether this was God having the, you know, the last laugh, so to speak, I don't know. Um, but it's, uh, and it doesn't seem that he lived a kind of raucous lifestyle or anything that you might think a nihilist would. Uh, he, he seemed to have a fairly stable, normal type of lifestyle and, and uh, didn't drink and uh, was not uh, was not a, a, a kind of uh, wild party or anything like that. Uh, in fact, he was a, a very astute uh, student. As you know, he became a professor at the age of 24 in a German university, which uh, in any age is extremely rare. And so he was... Uh, extraordinarily intelligent and insightful and studious so uh, what what actually caused him to it's one of those great mysteries what caused him to uh, descend into the state of insanity we don't know uh, we don't have a way to diagnose that from here unfortunately right I'd, uh, I thought about asking you about his, his professorial days but I uh I once had to review a book of essays about Kierkegaard as a philologist. Yeah. And uh, having read all of those essays, my, my conclusion was that basically that, that period of his life is, is best ignored. Uh, yeah. There, it was just incredibly dull, the, uh, his, his academic work. Uh, not, not, not his philosophical stuff, but his, his contributions to philology are just mind-numbing. Yeah, he did not really enjoy uh, being a professor, it seems. He did that for about 10 years and wanted to eventually, he just kind of checked out uh, and uh, kind of became a a wandering uh, type of hermetic uh, scholar and philosopher and thinker. Um, he still had, you know, met with people and, you know, enjoyed society of friends and so forth, but... Uh, he would often go to sanatoriums and other places, spas, and places where he could uh, uh, try to get some relief from his symptoms. But, right. um, but yeah, he, he didn't enjoy academia very much and, and really did not enjoy, you know, the discipline that that he uh, taught that much as, either. Uh, yeah, and uh, academia didn't care for him either. Uh his uh, birth of tragedy, right, was one of the ones that he'd published while he was a yeah. professor, and uh, the philologists were just underwhelmed by it because it was a work of philosophy, and philosophers were underwhelmed by it because it was written by a philologist. <laughs> yeah, can't win situation there, right? Yeah, right. And it's it's kind of interesting too. Is like up until eighteen eighty nine, all throughout this these years, he's writing these uh, works, especially in the eighteen eighties. He's writing so many books. Uh, 
you know, he, of course, after birth, the tragedy, he writes, uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra, you know, and then uh, Beyond Good and Evil, and Twilight of Idols, and Human All Too Human. And so he's writing all these different works, and they, none of them really sell. He gets no, no uh, notoriety. They go completely unnoticed. And right before he collapses into insanity, there was a brief little whiff of getting some some notice. But as soon as he descended in that state of insanity, his popularity just went ballistic. And so he never got to enjoy it. He never probably even knew about it. Right. And so by the time he died, like I said, he was a mythical figure in German culture, which is just really strange. You know, sure that uh, you know that things would turn out that way. Well, just as we're uh, as we're we're drawing near to our, our time for the interview, a couple of a uh, couple of quick questions for you. Uh, if someone wants to start reading Nietzsche, uh, which of his works should they pick up first? Uh, what what's a sort of loose order that they that they might go through? Right. Um, well. Perhaps the most accessible work, if you just want to get into the heart of, of some of his uh, the ideas that they're his uh, most uh, uh, the mediest or they have the most content to them, would be Beyond Good and Evil. Uh, for years, we would read that, uh, and and like you said, that you know it's aphoristic, so some of the readings are very short, but you know. You, it doesn't seem to all completely just uh, fit together. It doesn't read like a normal type of book where everything just kind of fits together. Now, if you like more of the artistic side, Thus Spake Zarathustra is usually considered his magnum opus because it was a work of art. It was, you know, a, a vast piece of uh, poetry, and, and it has a narrative type of story story to it, where Zarathustra is this prophet who comes down and begins to preach. Uh, all of these doctrines, the, the eternal return, the overman, and so forth and so on. That, that one is a little more poetic, uh, but beyond good and evil, a little more straightforward uh, in its uh, philosophy. Uh, if you're more interested in his uh, his ideas on morality, and the transvaluation of values, the genealogy of morals, uh, his uh, Antichrist, if you really want to see just a full out, all Attack, you know, frontal attack on Christianity is the Antichrist is uh, the place to go for that. Um, Eke Omo, which is his autobiography, which was published long, long after he died, but written before he died, obviously. Eke Omo, uh, Behold the Man, is uh, sometimes just quite outlandish and almost laughable, but what he does in there is he goes through and he talks about each of his works, why he wrote them, how he came up with his ideas, and so forth. Uh, now, the work Will to Power was one that was compiled by his sister uh, from a bunch of scraps and notes. Uh, Nietzsche was wanting to write kind of his, uh, his, his what he considered his magnum opus was... Uh, was will to power, but he, he uh, descended into insanity before it happened. So she took all those notes and redacted them and put them into the book known as Will to Power. And so it's it's not known just exactly how much of Elizabeth uh, uh, is there and how much of uh, Nietzsche is there. I mean, 
And so we don't know uh, how reliable that text is. So those are, you know, just a brief overview. There are many other works that he wrote. Um, but uh, anyway, if you just want to pick up Nietzsche and read them today, uh, I would I would suggest you pick up either Beyond Good and Evil or uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra. Uh, and if uh, if if listeners want to read uh, uh, beyond Nietzsche or or about Nietzsche, uh, other than you know tweetable Nietzsche, which is, is which is actually a place where I would encourage people to start. Uh, what what other secondary sources would you would you point them towards? Well, if they want a, a biography, uh, Hollingsworth's uh, biography is good. Um, just delves into his life and you know. In a straightforward way, uh, lots of very interesting, uh, very well written, I would say, um, as a uh, um, just a straightforward biography. When he gets into some of his, uh, you know, analyzing some of his ideas, I mean, their whole works on his politics, their whole works on you know his morality, uh, different concepts, and so forth. And many of these can get very deep and. Uh, and philosophical. Uh, there are various other introductory level uh, works out there, um, like one that I particularly enjoyed though was uh, Eric Heller's work, *The Importance of Nietzsche*. Um, and so there, there's there's a sea of material out there on him. I would. Uh, um, Well, the American Nietzsche is a pretty interesting study of the impact of, of uh, Frederick Nietzsche on American culture. Uh, that one uh, I found to be quite enlightening just uh, because there's a ton of research on how his, his uh, philosophy has made uh, inroads into the American intelligentsia and American culture. Um, also, uh, Stephen Ansheim's work, A Nietzsche Legacy in Germany from 1890 to 1990, a 100-year period, is uh, quite enlightening uh, because it shows us, uh, again, not just the deep impact on Nietzsche here, but on the German culture, starting right about the time that he went descended into a state of insanity. So uh, that's a, a particularly insightful work. Okay, and uh, it is uh, it is our practice here on Christian Humanist Profiles to uh, let the author have the last word. Uh, so you can say anything to our listeners that you think they need to hear, uh, particularly if it's about Nietzsche. But of course, it can be anything you like. Well, first of all, I'd like to say uh, thank you uh, um, uh, for having me on the, the Christian uh, Humanist, and it's been a pleasure being with you, uh, Doctor Neil. And uh, you've been very kind, uh, a host. Uh, I would encourage the listeners to explore uh, not just Nietzsche, but perhaps uh, the tweetable Nietzsche, and, and to, to begin to explore his impact upon our culture, because it's a quiet influence for the most part. The common man doesn't read Nietzsche, just like the common man doesn't read Marx or Freud or, or you know, any of the or Kant or other deep thinkers. But 
their ideas have deep, deep consequences that just keep on resounding and uh, rolling on. The ramifications uh, keep on rippling out. And uh, we can see this transvaluation of values project going on in our culture where each individual kind of becomes the center of values creation. And, and so I've, I've found uh, studying his works uh, to be particularly enlightening for, for understanding our culture today. And I would encourage you to explore it a little bit more. Thank you again, Dr. Spencer, for joining us on Christian Humanist Profiles. And thank you, listeners, for joining us as well. If you have comments or questions, please feel free to post them on the show notes at christianhumanist.com. Send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or comment on the Facebook page. Be sure to pick up a copy of Tweetable Nietzsche from Zondervan. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Filippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next episode of Christian Humanist Profiles.